Please take your Bible, would you, and turn to Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10. We want to continue the series that we're doing in Psalms, and uh, my little sub-series that has been a part of that has been in Psalm 9 and 10, and we've designed four messages in chapter 9 and chapter 10, and this is the third part of those four messages that have to do with the issue of um, uh, defending the oppressed, defending the oppressed, and we're interested in Psalm chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. There is a sense in which truly stable Christians have an otherworldliness type of mindset. What I mean is the fact that their mind is not on things of this world. Their mind is not about what's going on around them in their immediate circumstances. And in fact, they realize that this world is not their true home. One of the hymns that we just sang had to do with the fact that we are pilgrims here, and that is indeed the mindset of a truly stable Christian. And it's that kind of a mindset that really helps us in relationship to to oppression. Because we realize that whatever we endure and whatever we encounter, no matter how difficult the suffering and the loss may be that's a part of this life, we know it's only temporary And it is something that is passing. In fact, everything that is a part of this particular life is passing away, and it's passing away quickly, and we are part of that. Oppression is going to be a part of the day and age in which we live. It's going to be a part of the very world in which we live. Oppression is the arbitrary, unjust, and cruel exercise of power. Contemporary woke culture has redefined oppression to be race, gender, and sexuality-oriented. Intersectionality speaks of institutional oppression or systems of oppression, which they say are woven into the very fabric of the American culture, society, and laws. The truth is that wicked people use institutions and systems in order to gain advantages over others. That is the world in which we live. Scripture does not see race oppression as, or see oppression, I should say, as primarily race, gender, or sexuality-oriented. Scripture tells us that oppression doesn't come from institutions or systems. It comes from wicked people of power, no matter their race, gender, or choice of sexuality. And in fact... If you look at Psalm chapter 10, verse 17, which we will get to in our next message, David concludes by saying, Oh, Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Our Lord sees oppression as the powerful using the powerful using their power to take advantage and to destroy the weak for their own personal gain. And there's plenty of examples of oppression going on all around in our culture today. Trafficking of children for the sexual pleasure of the perverted elite. That's going on in our culture on a regular basis. It's hidden but it's there. Exploitation of women in order to line the pockets of the owners of abortion clinics. School teachers indoctrinating and then pressuring young and most vulnerable children to mutilate themselves with hormones and sex change surgeries in order to save their jobs and placate state and local school boards. Clergy and health and wealth gospel churches getting rich by milking the poor of their last penny 
with the empty promise of God's blessing on their life if they just give everything. Leaders in communist and Muslim countries imprisoning, torturing, killing genuine Christians in order to maintain power, that's going on every day. Bosses of big business firing Christian employees for not wanting to work on Sunday in order to make their bosses more rich. Spouses who threaten and beat their partners in order to get whatever they want. And that list could go on endlessly. Our Lord is concerned about the oppressed. Our Lord will defend the oppressed. And this is what Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 takes us through this journey to how to think about oppression in this sin-cursed world. Now, let me remind you, as we go back to chapter 9, the subscript of chapter 9 says, For the choir director, Almuth Laban, a psalm of David. Early on in this particular mini-series, it's a part of the broader series on psalms here, certain truths for uncertain times, we talked about this subscript. That little phrase, Almuth Laban, means set to the death of a son. That's what that means in the Hebrew. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates it to set to the secrets of a son. Now, we know that David was the author of these two psalms. And so when you add that subscript to what's going on in these particular psalms about the only reasonable context for these psalms has to do with David's encounter with his own son, Absalom. And Absalom's pursuit of David's, his own father, to kill him and to assume kingship of Israel, you can see that in 2 Samuel chapter 16 all the way through chapter 19. What Absalom did not know when he pursued his father was that his father was immortal if Yahweh wanted him to be king. However, the agony of having one of your own children revolt against you and desire to kill you must have caused David unbelievable anxiety and unbelievable grief. Remember, Psalm 9 and 10 belong together because the sequence of verses that roughly follow the Hebrew alphabet really is an acrostic from Aleph at the beginning of chapter 9 all the way down through Tav at the end of chapter 10. So you also see that Psalm 9 has a subscript description set to the death of a son, where Psalm 10 does not have any subscript, and that's why many believe that later on, when the Latin Vulgate was written and the chapter divisions were added to it, they divided the two, and it should never have been divided. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 belong together. Psalm 9 and 10 describe a time in David's life when his life was not only threatened, but quite possibly he was being hunted down by his own son, a member of his own family. And one of the most difficult and painful aspects, oftentimes of oppression or even abuse, is a betrayal of trust by someone whom was close to you and you had trusted. The oppression and the abuse is hard, but to be betrayed by someone that's a member of your own family, that becomes excruciating. His oppression was not only real, it was also very intimate. So as David describes his experience of awful mistreatment, you can see his highs and lows of trusting the goodness and the providence of Yahweh. And as we get into chapter 10, we'll experience one of the deep lows. Now, what are some of the lessons that we've learned thus far about how do you deal with oppression 
especially in the world in which we live. Well, first and foremost, we saw in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, um, that David actually begins with worship. First, in the midst of his anguish, David begins with worshipful praise to Yahweh during his hardship and one of the greatest disappointments of his life. He purposely recalls to mind the divine character of Yahweh with four Hebrew imperatives repeating the same words, I will, I will, I will, in those first two verses. When he says there, I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing to your name, O Most High. It's almost as if David is trying to persuade himself in the midst of his difficulty. And I will do this. David's practicing self-talk. That's something that goes on throughout all the book of Psalms. The psalmist, on a repeated basis, practices self-talk. And there is a sense in where you have to do the same thing, too. You must talk to yourself during awful hardship as an effective reminder to remain mentally resilient in your trust in the Lord. There's a second thing that we learned in chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, that God displays wrath. The second lesson is seen where David here reminds himself of Yahweh's eschatological intentions during his oppression. Yahweh's wrath is coming on the wicked, and it's going to be decisively personal and deliberately panoramic. And this is the type of a judgment that is fixed in heaven, so you must remind yourself the Lord will display his wrath eventually on your oppressor. The Lord will display his wrath eventually on your oppressor. And then in verses 7 through 10 in chapter 9, David says he will destroy the wicked too. So the third lesson is that Yahweh abides forever. His enemies are very temporal, and David is indestructible, and they're vulnerable and weak. He will bring, that is, the Lord will bring a terrifying judgment on them, and in the process, he will deliver his people. So you must rehearse the trustworthiness of the Lord because he will not forsake you during your oppression. And then, in our second message, we went into verses 11 through 20. And verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9, we find out the fourth lesson is that Yahweh will not forget the cry of the afflicted. He will demand punishment for bloodthirsty oppressors. Those who trust in Yahweh know he is a God of wonders. So you must remember to continue to give the Lord your praise and worship during your oppression because of his wonders. And then in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 9, the fifth lesson that we learn is that Yahweh will have compassion and eventually remove the affliction. He not only tells us that he will judge oppressors, but he tells us how he will judge oppressors. This is talionic justice that we talked about. He will cause the evil that they designed for us to fall back upon their own heads. And so you must trust that the Lord is a vengeful judge, causing your enemies to fall into their own traps. And then in verses 17 through 20, just by way of review of chapter 9, the sixth lesson that we learn is that David's difficulties is that Yahweh will bring uh, oppressors to an end by putting them in their graves. This will strike fear among the nations when they realize that their, only, their own frailty and their own helplessness before Yahweh, and there is absolutely nothing that they can do to stop that. 
So you must settle your anxious thoughts by acknowledging the finality and the frailty of your oppressors before the Lord. Now that brings us to chapter 10. It brings us to the first half of chapter 10 of Psalms. When God explains to Saul, the first king of Israel, the royal predecessor of David, why he is removing the kingdom from him, Yahweh says to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Yahweh has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him as a ruler over the people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. David became Israel's king. He was the second king of Israel. And he united the tribes of Israel. He conquered the enemies of Israel. He established the practices of worshiping Yahweh in Jerusalem. But we also find out in reading about his story that he was a real man who had real feelings and real failures. He had times in his life when his thoughts turned dark and negative, when pessimism washed over his thinking like a massive tsunami. Times when he stopped looking heavenward and began to focus his attention on all the troubles surrounding him. There's a sense in which David is just like you and I. This is when you see the real David as his heart is failing him. This one great, once great king is reduced to deep feelings of being abandoned by God. Has Yahweh forsaken David? Is Yahweh preoccupied with something else? David's enemies seem to be tightening their circle around him, and Yahweh cannot be found. In this text, you can begin to see David finally caving to disturbing thoughts of doom. Hopelessness is setting into his heart, and he bursts out in a desperate prayer, enumerating the awfulness of his enemy's advancement. Does Yahweh even care? Where is his God during this time? So David begins Psalm 10 with a despairing prayer of lament. He is at his lowest point. So he cries out to God to destroy his wicked pursuers because of their scorn and insolence. What bothers David most is not so much their torture of him or even their intention to kill him. But what bothers him really the most is their prideful boasting of getting whatever their wicked hearts desire. They flaunt their evil ways in the face of Yahweh. This account may come from antiquity and ancient Hebrew culture, but the truth here is absolutely timeless. When you face wicked opposition from greedy, powerful, and influential people, you have to live under the constant fear of reprisal and harm. This is the kind of psalm that's for you. Let's look at Psalm 10, verses 1 through 4. David says, Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desires, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. And here we come to this part in David's life where there is this disquieting worry. One major truth is abundantly clear in these early verses the believer is called to live in an evil world that is terrorized by despotic, violent, and crushingly powerful controllers. And to compound the problem, Yahweh seems distant. 
He always seems distant. Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever felt as if God seems so distant? Where is he? Does he even understand what's going on in my life? Does he even know what is going on in my life? Lord, why aren't you paying attention? Why aren't you answering my prayer? Where are you? It's a great question. Facing the onslaught of of an enemy is one thing, but the real problem is that the Lord does not seem to notice, David says. What do you think when God seems hidden from your difficulties and struggles? When David says, why do you stand far off, O Yahweh? He's not really questioning the omnipresence of God. It's really an anthropomorphic language asking, why have you not acted? I feel like I'm alone and totally at the mercy of these terrorists. Why do you hide yourself during my times of trouble? You're a covenant-keeping God, are you not? Where is my help and where is my deliverance during this time? Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 11, Yahweh said, Surely I will set up, set you free for the purposes of good. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede or make supplication with you in a time of disaster, in a time of distress. Early in Joshua 21 and verse 45, not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh has promised to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. David later on in Psalm 55, 23, but you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of corruption. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Certainly, that's not David at this particular point. What's really going on here? Has Yahweh broken his covenant to provide and protect his people? Well, that's not what David is saying. David is saying that there will be times in life when God will fail to intervene at the time that you think is necessary. The difference. What you think is the right time is not the Lord's timing. David's disquieting worry about God's hiddenness is both a revealing and a redemptive aspect to it. First, times of personal feelings of abandonment are designed to reveal whether or not you will seek him out for help, crying out for his attention. And then second, times of personal feelings of abandonment will also help you cherish his redemption even more when it finally occurs. Twofold benefit. So Yahweh seems distant, but oppression seems unbearable. Here's the pressing problem, and it is an evil game as old as time. Very powerful, wicked people are attempting to annihilate weak, helpless, and righteous people in order to achieve what they want. And it is a game that is going on everywhere in the world today. This is not a game that has ended Cain killed Abel, the beginning. The Egyptians enslaved and killed the Israelites for their purposes and to use them. King Saul sought to murder David for his own gain to maintain the rule of Israel. Absalom sought to murder his father. And this goes on and on. Wicked men are full of self-love and self-interest. They do not mind taking the life of others in order to get what their heart really desires. This is important to see. In Jude, in the book of Jude, verses 12 through 16. If you have a chance, turn over there just for a moment. In Jude, verses 12 through 16. Notice, here's a description of these men.
And I love the figurative analogies that are used to describe wicked people like this. Jude, verse 12 says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water. We know what that's like in Southern California. <laughs> Clouds without water. They promise a lot, deliver nothing. Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. But Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon them and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. That's the kind of people we're dealing with. That's the kind of people that are going to be a part of this world as long as this sin-cursed world exists. Now let's go back to Psalm 10 and verse 2. Notice what he says here in verse 2 when he says, In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. There's a hint where David is calling upon God for this talianic justice. Their pride is mentioned first. Arrogance and self-interest are their chief motivating desires. Less powerful people are their means to an end in achieving what they really want. In Absalom's case, his main objective was to secure the throne of Israel, replacing his father as king. It was an act of vengeance because of his bitterness towards his father. We'll talk about that in a moment. This was so deeply rooted in his heart, he was willing to kill his own father, but Yahweh's talianic justice caught up to him and Absalom was the one who died. In 2 Samuel 18 and verse 9, it says, Then Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Now Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule was under him, under him passed onward. He's hanging. He hung himself. And then in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 18, it says, Then Job said, I will not wait around here before you. So he took three spears in his hands and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. Now think about that for a moment. Here's Absalom running for his life after trying to attack his father David. And he goes underneath this oak tree He's going so fast, his head gets caught in the branches of the tree, and, it, and this mule keeps going. Did you know that that oak tree was placed there by the providence of Yahweh in order to capture Absalom long before Absalom was ever born? Talianic justice. Look at Psalm 10, verse 3. Now you begin to see, for the wicked boasts of his soul's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. So a heart of arrogance is revealed by what it adores and what it despises. It says he boasts of his soul's desires. That means that his desires and evil plans are the essence of his boasting. The Hebrew verb is in the perfect tense here. It indicates that arrogance is the essence of a wicked man's character. It's the very essence of his character. This is the way that he was in the past. He continues to be in the present, and he will be in the future. It's a part of who he is as a wicked person. 
And then the second half of verse 3 continues the same thought and adds that he is a greedy man who believes that he knows better than God. He knows better than God. I know better. I know what's good for me. I know what I want. And so he curses and he spurns Yahweh. Verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. So he curses and spurns Yahweh. Why? Because his true God is serving his heart's desire. That's his true God. We have an entire population of international countries filled with these self-centered terrorists today. The irony of this is that the people that people should bless Yahweh and revile the greedy, but that's not the way our world works. Wicked people like this may profess to follow godly virtues, but they are closet atheists. Their own heart condemns them when they confess there is no God. It condemns them. As David experienced the fear of his own personal demise, a disquieting worry settled over his thoughts. Where is Yahweh when I needed him? And the oppression seems unbearable. Worry is a sin if you're focused on your problems and the future, which you cannot control. Worry is sin when God is no longer in the picture. This is when hopelessness consumes your thinking and abject fear of circumstances or of men dominates your thought life. But if you're quick to remember the faithfulness of the Lord, it will not bring you down. David does this in the second half of the psalm, but we're not there yet. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. The dismissive ways, especially of those who are wicked. Verse 5 says, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says in his heart, I will not be shaken from generation to generation. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceits and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. So during this particular time, wicked ways seem to prosper. In verse 5, David turns to the ways of the wicked oppressors. And in these verses, he describes their characteristic preoccupations and standing, at least as it can sometimes appear to the righteous who are under oppression. The Hebrew word for the word ways here actually means his course of life. It speaks to his normal pattern of life or path of life, his habits in life his customary manner, his lifestyle. David says this pattern of life for the wicked oppressor seems to be too strong and prosperous. He's stable. He's well supplied for life. He has no weaknesses, no instability in his schemes and behaviors. This is in contrast to the way of the innocent, the helpless, the needy, and the righteous man how can the wicked seem so stable and prosperous? There appears to be a major inconsistency here in this God-created world. As Solomon later remarks in Ecclesiastes 7.15, I have seen everything during my days of vanity. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, Solomon is saying, there's some inconsistencies in this world and it doesn't seem right. Yes, when you're at that point and you believe that's true in your life, that somehow these inconsistencies shouldn't be here, then you realize that all things are not right yet. All things are not right yet. They will be. Not yet. God seems to be way above the wicked man, out of his sight and out of his consideration. From the wicked man's perspective, what God says or expects has absolutely no bearing on his behavior. 
Wicked oppressors are natural deists. God may exist, but he has practically nothing to do with me. That's deistic thinking. Since there's no one preventing his evil schemes, he can scornfully look down his nose at his adversaries and snorts at them, as David says, in prideful arrogance. So not only do wicked ways seem to prosper, wicked ways seem secure. Picking up at verse 6, where it says, he says in his heart, I will not be shaken from generation to generation. I will not be in adversity. Evil oppressors are so self-confident, they actually believe that they cannot be moved. There's a cocky sense of stability and security that is unnerving. They proudly believe that they will never face difficulty or misfortune. It's not even a part of their personal consideration. We would say that people like this are blinded by their own arrogance, their confidence in themselves. They believe that they are clever, intelligent, sharp-witted, exceptional, and brilliant. No one can control me. But they're the ones who want to control everyone else. Thomas Watson has written this. He says, pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. A proud man is a self-worshipper. The sons of Korah says this about the wicked in Psalm 49 and verse 11. The inner thought is, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places from generation to generation. They have called their lands after their own names. Going back to Ecclesiastes, when Yahweh delays his wrath on the wicked, Solomon says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And this is the injustice, this is the tension that David senses in his life. The wickedness that seems to be surrounding him and wants to consume him and cause his doom seems to be closing in and it's getting darker and darker. Where is God when that happens? Charles Bridges says the proud person is Satan's throne. And the idle man, his pillow. Hmm. Listen to the insight of Jonathan Edwards. Pride is the person having too high opinion of himself. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and the last sin that is rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of all sins. There is no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Alas, how much pride the best have in their hearts. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. There is no sin so much like the devil as pride. It is a secret and subtle sin and appears in a great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected, end of quote. That's a prideful, wicked man. The righteous are just the opposite. Their confidence is not in themselves, it is in the Lord. That's the reason why their primary characteristic is one of humility. David says it like this in Psalm 62, 2, Surely he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. So the righteous man is strong and immovable because Yahweh is their stronghold. He does not trust in himself for deliverance. He only trusts in the Lord, where the wicked man trusts in himself for his own deliverance, and he falsely believes that he, his life is unshakable. Third thing here, wicked ways are also malicious. In verse 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceits and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. So David's enemies here in verse 7 were petulant. Every time such a man opens his mouth, his words are full of cursings, reckless swearing, 
David speaks to this later on in Psalm 59 and verse 12 and 13. He says, on account of the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of curses and lies which they utter, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Even the prophet Hosea speaks of such men. In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 2, where is swearings of oaths, deceptions, murder, stealings, and adultery? Or I should, there is swearings of oaths, deception, murder, stealings, and adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Paul talks about this in Romans 3.14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Asaph speaks of such wicked men in Psalm 73 and verse 8. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high, from their high lofty positions. David finally says in Psalm 140 and verse 3, they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of asp is under their lips. One commentator on, on Psalms 10 writes this, the warning to people should be clear even in this part of the psalm. If an individual despises and denies God, denies any accountability for his deeds, boasts about triumphs at the expense of weaker people, then people would be warned to avoid any business dealings or social contacts with such a one, end of quote. Well, such people care only for themselves, advancing their cause, seeking their own desires, and using others who are at a disadvantage to achieve somehow their conceited purposes. And then later, this brings us to verses 8 through 10, or 8 through 11, where it says, he sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes steadily watch for the unfortunate. His lies, he lies in waits in hiding places as a lion in its lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says in his heart, God has forgotten he has hidden his face. He will never see it. So how do the wicked accomplish their goals against the helpless? David describes it in, in verses 8 through 11. They do it by way of ambush. That's how they do it. They do it by way of ambush. Wicked works are very deceptive. The unsuspecting and helpless are suddenly caught in a trap where there's no escape. Verse 8, wicked ambushers here, like animal hunters in a blind, sit in hidden places in the village waiting to spring their trap. Their intention is to kill their prey. This is not an open attack. It's a stealthy attack. It's done secretly. It's done quietly until their victim is helplessly overpowered and then destroyed. The last phrase of verse 8 says, his eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. It is as if he is treasuring every moment of the hunt until he has slayed his prey. The very next psalm in Psalm 11 and verse 2, David writes, For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at, at the upright in heart. There's the ambush. Remember, this parallels what happened to David when his son turned against him. Absalom was very angry at his father David because David refused to listen to his complaint against his half-brother Ammon following Ammon's rape of his sister Tamar. And this angered Absalom more than anything. He waited for a long time for David to respond. David never responded. Later in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom secretly raises up a conspiracy against David in order to overthrow him. In fact, take your Bible just for a moment, put a marker here in Psalm 10 and go back to 
2 Samuel 15 and verse 7. Let me pick up there. 2 Samuel 15 and verse 7. It says, Now it happened at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Jeshur in uh, Aram, saying, If Yahweh shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve Yahweh. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Now 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. But Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilah, while he was offering his sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And then an informant came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have followed Absalom. So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us hastily and drive calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So David realized that Absalom had sprung his trap. Let's go back to chapter 10 and verse 9 of Psalms. David now was caught completely by surprise, and he had to flee Jerusalem for his life. And he continues to describe how the wicked lurk around to kill the weak for personal gain like a lion in his lair. The picture is one of lions hiding in tall grass on the Serengeti, waiting for the perfect time to launch their attack against him unsuspecting antelope. Psalm 17 and verse 12 says, He is like a lion that is eager to tear and a young lion lurking in hiding places. Stealth and speed are their main weapons. So it is with wicked oppressors. They slay, Psalm 94, 6 says, They slay the widow and the sojourner and murder the orphans. What are What's that picture of? It's a picture of helpless people. Oppressors are people seeking a powerful advantage through secretive ambush. The third line of verse 9 now changes to an analogy to a hunter with a net. In this verse, the hunter has a net, and he draws his victim into the net through some kind of clever ploy, and the helpless victim then is seduced to believe it is safe. As Micah 7.2 says, the Holy One has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. So the use of the hidden net adds malicious deception to their stealth and speed. And then verse 10. This verse describes what happens. What happens to the hapless victim? He crouches, he bows down, or you can translate this as the crushed one sinks down. So it's clear that such a helpless person is no match for such a clandestine attack. They are overwhelmed, they are overpowered, and they are crushed. The overall picture is one of helplessness, hopelessness, and death. This was the way that David was beginning to feel when he felt that Yahweh was far away and somehow disconnected and disinterested and what David was going on with David. Finally, in verse 11, verse 11 talks about, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will not see it. Arrogant and ruthless oppressors become convinced that they can get away with their evil. They can commit the perfect crime and never be held accountable. They can become confident that they've even fooled God, that God does not see what they have done. He... He says in his own heart that God has forgotten or that he has hid his face from them. So he never saw it to begin with. History calls what we saw in verse 4. 
where it says the wicked in their haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All of his thoughts are there is no God. So abusive oppressors believe their happiness lies in seeking their own desires at the cost of destroying everyone else that is weak and helpless around them, and they despise God. Their lustful quest robs other people while mocking God. John Calvin provides a more biblical view when he says, we must never allow ourselves to be deceived by imaginary happiness of the ungodly, but in the circumstances of our distress, we must keep before us the providence of God who ultimately will bring order out of confusion. But these wicked people, they're self-deluded. They are self-deceived. They live in a dream world of their own minds that has nothing to do with the reality of a God-created and sustained world. Why? Because David has already stated in Psalm 9:12, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So in the final verses of chapter 10, you will see how the afflicted can cry out to the Lord and he will intervene for his people. Let me conclude with this. In the first 11 verses of Psalm 10, David feels alone, abandoned, forsaken by God. To make matters worse, he is suffering one of the greatest storms of his life. And you may personally understand David's concerns and struggles when your life has become hard and God is distant. Distant. What, what is the Lord up to? Thomas Watson said, Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure suffering triumphantly. I've used this before, but I want to use it again in closing here. William Cowper's poem entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It turned into a famous sin. Listen to what he says. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The blood, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that David was a human being with struggles, difficulties, hardships, and feelings of anxiousness just like us. Where he felt somehow that God had abandoned him, God had forsaken him, and yet you had not. David's timing for your intercession was not your timing. And there are things that David needed to learn during those times of emptiness and fear. Father, you take us through those particular times, ultimately for our good as well as your glory. And we, like David, need to learn how to worship you even during those times. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.